Welcome back, dear listeners, to this next episode of the Sparker podcast, where it is my pleasure to talk to bright and inspiring people about their mindsets and insights on important topics from the world of entrepreneurship, technology, innovation, or leadership. This time, I talked to Ulrike Pfreund, who's a smart and passionate ocean biologist turning social entrepreneur with a lot of insights to share in the area of sustainability, climate change, and her specialty, coral reefs. With her young non-profit organization called Reefs, that's triple R, two E's, F, S, she uses a blend of science, art, and interesting technologies with the goal to have a positive impact on the environment by saving the rapidly dying coral reefs on this planet. You'll be surprised to learn in this episode how crucial and how far the importance of coral reefs go, or how Ulrike and her co-founder Marie are using 3D printing technology to build artificial reefs with clay. Furthermore, we'll talk about how to deal with complexity how to communicate complex topics in science or anywhere for that matter, to what extent technological progress can help us with the challenge that is climate change and much more. So please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Ulrike Pfreund. Good morning and welcome, dear Ulrike. It is a great pleasure for me to have the chance to talk to you about all your insights you have into the area of sustainability and also about your vision and the project that you are working on with reefs. I think it's very exciting and visionary and interesting. So um, it's great for me to have the opportunity to talk to you. And uh, what I like about you, one of many things is that you're an ocean biologist who turns into a social entrepreneur as we are speaking. Um, I think that's very cool and interesting. And for that, you're uh, joining forces with an artist, Marie. Mm -hmm. um, I think also that is very cool and interesting how that works, science and arts together with the use of um, interesting technology. Um, and what you're working on are basically 3D printed artificial reefs so the coral reefs and you're also just starting out now with a very interesting project uh, you're doing crowdfunding at the moment and uh, obviously a cause worth supporting and uh, before we uh, dive deeper into that project of artificial coral reefs that you are working on right now um, i would just like to start with a little bit of context so um, could you give us an idea why you have chosen to focus on reefs or on corals? Um, what is their role in the entire sustainability and climate change context? Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me here. I'm honored to be able to speak to you today. Um, yeah, I mean, coral reefs are really my, my second love at I have to say my first love were the rainforests. I'm just a biodiversity nerd. <laughs> um, 
And I noticed, or when I, when I thought about what's what's wrong with the planet at the moment and uh, the the environments that are most threatened, coral reefs are really really urgently need help. And I'm a marine biologist, as you said, so I was sure with my skills I could contribute to helping coral reefs survive. Um, maybe just to give some context why they're so threatened is mainly because of climate change. There are other reasons, lots of other reasons as well, but climate change at, at the moment is the the largest threat, say, to, to coral reefs. We've had massive bleaching waves where corals died around the world in um, 2017, for example, also this year, 2020. Now, almost half of all corals around the world are already dead. So we really have to do something because about a quarter of all marine life is dependent on reefs. So imagine if all coral reefs die, which is the projection until mid-century. Well, I'm saying all, but it's about 90 to 95% of all corals are predicted to die until mid-century. We might see the extinction of a quarter of all marine species. So that for me is reason enough um, to start helping to save coral reefs because we just don't know what happens to the whole ocean when when it loses a quarter of its life. This will trickle down to diverse other ecosystems because coral reefs are uh, the you could say the kindergarten of the oceans. Mostly juvenile fish and other juvenile animals really depend on reefs for uh, their their early years or early months or days. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we'll see a lot less fish also in the open ocean, for example. Fisheries will collapse when reefs die. But also uh, coastlines are left very vulnerable vulnerable because normally healthy reefs protect coastlines from wave damage and storms. Those are just some of the reasons. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'll stop here. <laughs> yeah, but um, but I would like to uh, dig a little bit deeper, or, um, uh, kind of broaden the image even further, because what, what strikes me always when talking about uh, climate change or ecosystems, um, sustainability and so on, what always strikes me is this huge complexity and interconnectedness. Mm. So you, of course, you mentioned coral reefs are not just beautiful structures, colorful structures, but they're also very important for marine life, for coastline protection. Mm. I believe uh, you once mentioned um, in another talk or in, when I did my research that also for cancer, research that coral reefs play a role and just as one more example of how far um, this interconnectedness reaches could you may maybe give some examples of maybe non-obvious yes. um, impacts of sure. when corals disappear sure i mean especially say here in landlocked switzerland we often think what should i care right or like if, if you will, what should I care if coral reefs die? I don't eat fish, um, so it doesn't really concern me. But no, we're as, as humanity, we are very dependent on biodiversity as a whole because this is where we, we are prospecting new substances. 
for example, for medicine or especially for medicine. And coral reefs are have a very high biodiversity in a very small space. And being cramped together like that with all these different species in really one smallish place, you get a lot of biologically active substances because those animals are trying to fight each other. They're competing for space, for sun. So there's a lot of compounds that are uh, that have a very high potential to serve as medicines. And already now we have uh, a few important cancer medicines that were sourced from coral reefs and uh, some very important uh, painkillers as well. Um, those were sourced from sponges that live in coral reefs. So not from corals themselves, but from other animals that are dependent on coral reefs. And this blue biotechnology is really just starting out um, because pharma companies started realizing that there's a, a very big potential in, in reefs. And now we're seeing that this is starting out, but at the same time, reefs are dying really, really quickly. Um, so there's a high interest in, in trying to protect them also for that reason. I think well, what you mentioned now is, um, if I would put it in a metaphor, and please um, comment, disagree or whatever, but it sounds to me like um, um, industry, uh, be it medicine, pharma and so on, uh, they realize maybe now or a couple of years ago that if you look at what happens in nature, basically you can access a research and development lab that has been going on for millions of years. Mm. Um, so is that a bit far stretched to say that um, when industry looks at nature that they basically can access a huge research and development um, department that they don't <laughs> need to spend any money for? Uh -huh. Um, That's an interesting way to put it. I'd say yes, definitely in, in some regard. Obviously, these especially the chemical substances that we can find in nature have been evolving over hundreds, thousands of years. Um, and a lot of these molecules, biomolecules, are, I mean, we cannot make them. We don't know how nature makes them, but they found some metabolic way inside the cells to produce them. And that's uh, that's a reason why it's so valuable. That's true. We we'd have to spend probably years of organic chemistry to try and find a way to make these in the lab. Okay, cool, interesting. And um, when talking about climate change and sustainability, obviously the oceans play a big role. But I sometimes get the impression that um, the sustainability discussion is more focused on other areas or just there are so many th areas to talk about. Mm. Um, could you maybe place uh, the topic of coral reefs in in this larger discussion? For example, how, how impactful is it if you uh, achieve success in, in the coral reef area versus I don't know, um, getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Of course, it's <laughs> everything yeah. is necessary, but um, just to give us some dimensions, maybe. Is that possible? So if we're talking about climate change and carbon sequestration, I guess uh, that, that, that is mainly what you mean, right? W what effect do different parts of the ocean have on maybe getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? and thus helping us fight climate change. 
So in this regard, I found that um, there's often a little bit of a misunderstanding uh, that coral reefs suck up a lot of carbon dioxide because that's not true in itself. So for sure, say kelp forests, which are large algae, um, or um, mangrove forests are much more important to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So if we want to sequestrate carbon dioxide, we want to reforest mangroves, it's a very important feat uh, as well. And luckily going on um, all over the planet as well. Um, but coral reefs have a larger impact. I mean, they, they do... They do take carbon dioxide and make it, in, make it into limestone, basically, because that's what their skeleton is made of, right? It's, it's calcium carbonate, and the carbonate has the carbon dioxide. Um, but it's not a huge amount of carbon dioxide. So the coral reefs have the, their biggest impact is really in biodiversity and in protecting life throughout the oceans, um, there is an effect, obviously, uh, in for primary production as well. This is the the process that takes carbon dioxide through photosynthesis from from the atmosphere and makes organic molecules from it, because the coral symbionts, the algae that live in the corals, do that. So obviously, there is some sequestration, but it's not this huge amount that people sometimes think. Um, I don't know where that came from, actually. Okay. So you, you mentioned uh, uh, misunderstanding, misconceptions. Are there uh, other misconceptions that you would like to take the opportunity to just debunk <laughs> in a couple of uh, seconds or minutes? Is there something that uh, uh, always was um, uh, um, like a stone or a weight on your shoulders <laughs> that you need yeah. to get out? Uh, there's one thing that always struck me uh, that I've seen in the media here and there is coral reefs produce the oxygen that we breathe. Uh, we've, we've heard that a couple of times. I was like, no, that's not true. The oceans produce the oxygen that we breathe. Like the whole ocean produces about half of the oxygen that we breathe. So every second molecule. Um, so obviously if we lose a lot of life in the oceans, that might be threatened because the chemical balance of the ocean could change. But coral reefs themselves don't produce every second molecule of oxygen. That would be crazy. They only uh, cover about 1% of the ocean. So <laughs> okay, super. debunk that. Yeah, glad we, um, we had the chance to, to do that. Excellent. Um, so I think... Um, I would now like to uh, get closer to your project that you're working on with these artificial 3D printed structures. Um, obviously, uh, this podcast is audio only, so uh, you might need to try to help visualize uh, the listeners mm -hmm. what you are working on. Um, the, the way I would put it, and then of course, um, do what with it, whatever you like, but I would try to put it in a sentence like um, what you're doing is creating Lego-like um, building blocks that are optimized for oceans and corals, obviously. And with those building blocks, you are able to create these artificial structures um, specifically for the environment that you put them in. 
Is that kind of a fair summary? How, what would you like to make out of this starting point? Mm -hmm. Thank you for starting. Um, I would describe it as we are, we've developed a, a system for rebuilding coral reefs where they have been damaged or where they died. And the system consists of small building blocks that you can carry uh, with your hands, about 20 by 30 centimeters, about 30 centimeters high, that are 3D printed with clay, a sustainable material. And these blocks or bricks, as we call them, reef bricks, uh, are stackable in any combination you would like. So we can build uh, shapes basically as we envision them with these uh, bricks. Uh, and also we can build reefs of any size with them. We just ramp up the number of bricks. So each brick then has been optimized by us to a certain extent. Obviously it's a prototype, so there's still work to do. Um, we're, we're in a hot phase of research and development basically all the time. <laughs> But uh, the structure of each of these building blocks, these reef bricks, is specifically designed to give new spaces for coral offspring, for coral larvae to settle, and also new habitat for all the life that I mentioned earlier that depends on reefs. And the reason we're doing that is, you might ask, why, why are you building new reefs, artificial reefs, um, is that when the corals die, which is happening around the world very rapidly, the reefs are losing much or a large part of their three-dimensional structure. And all the life that's dependent on reefs actually depend on this three-dimensional structure. So we're trying to stabilize animal populations, coral populations, uh, by giving them back this structure. Very good. So if listeners want to check out how that looks like concretely, this prototype and the, the bricks that you're working on, um, listeners can go on your website and that's reefs.com, mm -hmm. reefs with three R. Yeah, a triple R. It's R-R-R-E-E-F-S dot com. And uh, right now you can find our crowdfunding video there where everything's explained in, in short. Um, also on YouTube, if you just type in corals and my name, for example, <laughs> you'll find a, a couple of talks, a couple of videos that describe different aspects um, of our work. Okay, super. I think um, maybe if, if you feel the urge, dear listeners, then you can uh, go on the website right now, click pause, but come back <laughs> to this conversation. Um, so I'm always a fan to try to kind of distill principles out of concrete um, experiences. So um, looking back all these years that you've been involved in these topics, um, what have you learned about how to approach complexity and how to uh, take apart complexity so that you know, okay, this is an area where we need to focus and so on. You mentioned, for example, okay, um, material is important for its porosity mm. um, and so on. Um, I'm asking this because many people 
listening to this podcast, they have their own kind of complexity in their um, daily lives, in their business environment that they need to kind of take apart so that they can take action. Um, and I would be interested to learn from you. Maybe you have a, um, a sense of how you approach complexity to be able to take action. That's a very uh, interesting question. I don't think anyone has ever asked that. So I haven't really thought about it much. I think the baseline is to really get a, a broad understanding of things. That's always been very important. So I've always been someone who... Um, who reads about many, many different things, who's curious and interested in a lot of different aspects, say, of a theme or even of many themes. So, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not just interested in notions. I could talk to you about blockchain as well, if, you know, because I, I found, find that interesting. I'm interested in politics and the financial system and all these things. Um, but it doesn't mean I go into much depth. I think it's always a good starting point to be informed about many aspects even if it's just superficially or to such an extent you know that you could chat about them at a dinner table <laughs> you don't have to be an expert but just just having a little bit of information on many things i think creates this yeah this network of ideas and information in your head that you can then access and you start thinking about one aspect of a complex system and suddenly this thing would pop up in your head and be like ah yeah I, I mean I read about how this actually connects to x connects to y here so maybe you should think about y a little bit as well um it's kind of a muscle that you are training uh, it's it's it sounds to me the complexity muscle <laughs> yeah in a in a sense i think i've always i've always had this mental picture of um because you know sometimes you read something then you're like ah oh, damn it i read this thing a month ago but i've forgotten all the details and i think it's good not to be afraid of that i i always had this mental picture of whatever i read or inform myself about i just trust that it's stored somewhere so like, like a, a book or a magazine that you put into your shelf and you just trust it's there. You don't know what's inside it, but if you need or if your brain needs to, it just goes to that shelf and takes that magazine out and opens it. And suddenly at least a part of that information is accessible again. That mental picture has always helped me to not freak out about forgetting details um, and just trusting that you know, somehow your brain does things with all that information that you gathered. And uh, I think that's really the, the basic, the, one of the basics of thinking about complex systems. That's what you are saying reminds me also of a concept I once heard that stuck with me. Um, the concept of T-shaped persons. Uh -huh. So T like the letter T. Yeah. And T-shaped because you have um, a broad line at the top of the letter 
that would be the um, broad knowledge of different topics of ah. sustainability, blockchain, mm -hmm. politics, and so mm -hmm. on. But then there's one area where we go really deep. Mm -hmm. um, so th the shape of the letter T, um, also kind of a, a principle, how you as a person could um, skill yourself, be knowledgeable, and so on. That includes, I would say, a lot of what you're saying. Also the fact that you don't need to have deep knowledge about many things. You just need to know where you can get the information once you notice that you need it. Right, yeah. So it's kind of a maybe a low resolution map of a lot of things mm -hmm. and a very high resolution map of uh, a certain area. That's a super nice image, that T-shape. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that that really, that sounds reasonable. Def you definitely want one area where you go deep. Otherwise, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you want one area where, where you're the expert, I guess. Yeah. For sure. Um, I would like to uh, stick with the topic of uh, dealing with complexity for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so something that I could imagine that you are facing all the time is um, you, you are dealing with these complex systems and then you have to communicate to people that don't know the details of these complex systems. They might not have the time to digest all these information and so on. So you need a way to communicate complexity so that these topics become approachable, understandable, or that you can inspire people to take action, those kinds of things. Uh, and I believe that obviously you are trained in that since you have a many year history as a researcher, as a scientist, but also your co-founder Marie, I believe, mm -hmm. is specialized in kind of science communication. That's right. Um, so what have you learned in in all uh, those years you have been in that field about communicating complexity? Um, are there some things that maybe work consistently? So mm -hmm. I, I don't know. It's just some examples uh, and do with them whatever you like. Um, what works? Is it working with facts or with emotions? Are these rather positive emotions like I'm promising you a better world or negative emotions like creating fear or pressure? Just these, just one uh, set of examples. Um, but very broadly speaking, uh, what have you learned about communicating complex topics? So certainly not doing it as usually scientists do. <laughs> that does not work very well. So in, uh, in what is it that scientists do wrong? For to, to yeah, get a exactly. Bit that's a, that's a good starting point. Um, usually, when we talk on or, or most of us scientists talk on scientific conferences, we go pretty straight away into complicated results that only people from your field would understand and then everybody else is bored. Also, often uh, scientists would not use very appealing visual material. So <laughs> what I've learned over the years and say maybe also in terms of, yeah, is essentially storytelling, right? Or maybe I should say to communicate a complex topic, you want to wrap it in a story. And definitely, if I, if I give a talk, I don't use more than a couple of words per slide, for example. 
that's a very technical thing, but it definitely helps to aid people in their understanding, but also keeping, you know, keeping them awake and interested to work with a lot of good visual material, uh, images, or sometimes maybe a video. Um, and to guide them through the story by giving them enough of introduction, why not have half of your presentation be introduction? You know, people are interested in the topic itself, maybe a few examples uh, th that are interesting. Also, uh, it's good to work with metaphors for very complex topics, such as I can give an example <clears throat> when I have to explain you know, why do you need this, uh, this surface structure? Why do coral larvae need this surface structure? That's uh, deep down, that's quite complex. It's how the structure interacts with water flow. And then why does it need to interact with the water flow in this certain... You could do a PhD about it. Uh, you could do, <laughs> literally, you would need a, a PhD student to study this in depth. You're right. Um, but... I could explain it this way. Imagine you're a coral larvae. You're very tiny, about one millimeter long, and you can't really swim. Now you're in this strong current, and to your right, you see this really attractive reef that you would like to settle on. But the current just swipes you past that reef. You can't really get, you can't really get onto the structure. Um, so you need to be transported by the water towards that wall. And um, actually now I did something wrong, I noticed, because I wanted to tell you a metaphor. So <laughs> <laughs> how I would explain it, imagine you want to climb a mountain. Then you're the coral larvae now, and the mountain is this attractive reef. So if you wanted to climb this mountain, uh, the top of the mountain say that's your end point that's where you want to get to if the mountain is smooth you can't really get up there right you'd have no chance of really climbing this mountain if it had a smooth surface and it's the same with the reef if it has a smooth surface the larvae can't really get there and attach you need fine scale structure on the mountain to hold on to and step your feet on and that's kind of a similar problem for coral larvae. They need that fine scale structure to settle down and attach themselves to have the right interaction with the flow close to the surface so that they're not, for example, swept away again by the next storm flood. Um, now we've diverted. No, that's perfect. So um, metaphors are important mm -hmm. in your opinion. Um, you mentioned storytelling. Um, storytelling is one topic that I also did um, a conversation about with um, a former marketing uh, professional at Apple. Mm, so wow. somebody who is really has put in their head, uh, yeah. their mind to to the topic for a long time. So you find that on this Sparkle podcast website if you want to deep dive there. Um, but I would also like to continue on that topic here, of course. Um, Maybe to, to keep it concrete, um, do you know somebody, be it a, a person or an institution, who does it well? Um, do you, is there somebody you look up to or an organization that inspires you in the way how they communicate complexity? And if so, 
what do you like about it? And if there's a blank space mm -hmm. uh, in your mind, then mm -hmm. we can go the other way, of course, and look at uh, <laughs> you saw what that in my are <laughs> some uh, things that you believe are uh, terribly wrong <laughs> that you see often without naming names, of course. <laughs> yeah. So you can go either yeah. way. Um, is there an organization or a person that does it very well? I'm wondering. I mean, actually, if you go to the TED website <laughs> you, and you watch TED Talks, most of them are actually really well crafted and they're often super complex topics. Um, and, and most of the TED fellows do a really great job in communicating those. Uh, what I sometimes do miss is depth. So I'm often left at the end of a TED talk being like, ah, but, but you didn't really explain. Like, I wanted to know why this works like that. And, but I guess then you just have to go and look further for a, a less shallow kind of talk because these are designed to be shallow to uh, communicate a topic to a very broad range of people. So that's absolutely fine. And I really love that. They're very engaging. They get you interested in a topic and then you can do your deep dive yourself. Um, yeah, so that would be my example right now. I can't uh, off the top of my head think of, of anyone in particular. Um, but certainly for us, it's maybe now I, I just want to start speaking about the marriage of art and science briefly. Um, so for us, or for me, it was really great that I met Marie last year. We met uh, about one and a half years ago in, uh, in May 2019. And she as an artist uh, and, and also having been in contact with scientists for years, she's, she's always interacted with scientists. Um, so she's really learned how to take scientific topic and communicate it through her art. And I think art is a very exciting way to communicate also yeah maybe take some complexity out of a topic or, or reduce it to one aspect for the time being and get people excited and aware about this one aspect and um so i i'm so glad that i'm working with her now because i think together we are a really good team in um, communicating our work and so raising awareness for coral reefs with Marie, we can do, she can do exhibitions, you know, and, and through the exhibitions talk about why we restore reefs the way we restore reefs. And that's a really cool combination. Also underwater exhibitions, I think just cool because they're underwater exhibitions. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of that. That sounds very, ex how, so you must dive underwater yeah. as a exhibition um, visitor. Exactly. Or snorkel. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so right now Marie has an exhibition, I think, in, or she has her artwork in a Swiss lake. You can go snorkel. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Obviously you get less visitors, so you have to make it an <laughs> event in summer, for example, to really get a larger group. But no, it's it's really cool. Yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. And I'm glad that you are um, going to that um, topic area of the marriage of science and art, as you has, have called it. Um, I think that collaboration or combination is really intriguing. Um, obviously, you now said the kind of um, 
a better understanding of how to communicate is one merit or benefit of bringing those two fields together. Um, where do you see additional potential or how do art and science benefit from each other also in other ways? Mm, I mean, I think internally th there's definitely a, a huge benefit because both of us have very different fields of expertise um, and by working together, we always have to, let's say, provide access to our field of expertise in a way that we might not have been used to. So I guess that's a communication aspect as well, though. You, you train yourself by working so closely together with somebody from such a different field um, to talk about what's, what's say, necessary in your daily work uh, or how discuss how we want to go forward in the science or in the artistic uh, aspect or in the design. Um, so each of us has to explain these things in, in different ways, I think, than if we just be explaining them to people of our own field. Um, but then one aspect that has been really important and really great about working with an artist, but maybe it's also specifically working with Marie, <laughs> is um, that we just have very complementary fields of expertise, but are united by the same passion. So I'm more the thinker. I, I, you know, I organize the science. I think about how we do experiments or how we implement experimental results into the new design. But she's the doer. Through, and I think that's through her artistic aspect. She's just, okay, let's go. Let's build this. Uh, I'm making... I'm designing a brick now. I'm now I'm getting someone to program this 3D printer and then we're going to start printing bricks tomorrow. And uh, if there's anything new to be done, she would just go and do it. And she already has she has a plan of all the logistics of how to actually construct that reef. You know, she has the material expertise that I had never dealt with. Um I think this may be also due to her um, visual thinking. I think she can she can visualize things that we or like uh, she can visualize new prototypes in her head and then just go and make them. She's also made this cool little uh, brick system out of uh, 3D printed tiny tiny 3D printed bricks that we can use to try out new shapes. It's like a tenth of the real shape of the of the of the real size. Sorry, so they're, they're like tiny little bricks, but five centimeters long. And she's just made tons of them uh, that we can use to try out uh, new new reef shapes, which is really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. And um, si since you now, since now we are talking about um, uh, you and Marie joining forces um, now as kind of co-founders of a uh, sustainability project or as a social entrepreneur and so on. I would like to um, talk about that for a second. So you both had your paths um, in uh, in your areas. In your example, it would be um, the science, the research and so on. Um, and now you continue 
more with this um, social entrepreneur um, uh, mindset or tool set or however you would mm -hmm. like to call it. Um, and I would be interested in why, what, what's the, the reasoning behind you transitioning from I'm a researcher and that's my way of impact to I become more entrepreneurial I choose that kind of path for impact. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I've been a researcher my whole professional life. So now for, mm, if you include studies, 15 years. <laughs> um, and it's always been cool and fun. I've, I've liked uh, the fact that I can be just curious about things and then research them. I mean, that's amazing. You get to, to play around, uh, do experiments, find out new things. You're always at the forefront. Everything you do has never been done by anyone else. But what also comes with being a, a fundamental researcher or researcher of fundamental science is that uh, while you're always doing new things that no one has done before, it also means that things are moving rather slowly because you want to be super careful, design more experiments, you know, research this, or investigate this other aspect of the topic. Um, so real insight in academia moves very slowly. And often you're stuck with a very detailed problem for years. And then maybe in 10 years, somebody will take your results and make something great of it. That happens. And then this person will be the next Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> like happened with CRISPR. For example, CRISPR has had decades of research before it, very fundamental research of why do bacteria have this weird repeat in their genome. And now it's just, this huge Just as a tool. side note, CRISPR is kind of this gene editing tool set. Exactly. Um, very vaguely speaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great result. That's why I like it of how fundamental research leads to a huge breakthrough for all of society. Whether you like that breakthrough or not is different discussion. But um, I was missing the, a, a more direct impact um, basically because I'm so concerned about what's happening to the oceans and to our planet in general. I felt like I didn't want to work on something that takes 10 years to come to fruition. Fruition. <laughs> um, And so I said, what can I do to have an impact right now? Uh, I wanted to help coral reefs right now, not in 10 years. So I thought a way to do that was to get out of academia, which is, as I said, rather slow moving most of the time and move into uh, applied science at least and directly apply my skills and start doing something today. That was the main reason. Okay, super interesting. And it's happy to hear that with Marie, you also found apparently a partner who brings that doing attitude and skill set into the mix. Absolutely. And I could imagine that uh, it's kind of a cross-pollinating combination that, as you described, you both learn from each other and make, make that um, entrepreneurial journey a bit more, uh, how do you say, maybe a bit easier to enter? Yeah. Or Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm, I have the tendency to overthink things. Um, I once did this, it's called Strength Finder 
test. It's an online test you can do. It costs a little bit of money, but I know one of my strengths was incubating, <laughs> which was described as uh, you take information and then you sit and and breed on them for for a long time before you decide to finally do some something with them. So that's my tendency to overthink, which I've learned to see as a strength. <laughs> Thank you, Strength Finder. Um, but definitely, Marie gets me out of doing this too much. Like often, I would like I would like to really sit down with some material for a week, but right now. That's maybe not possible because we have to move forward. We have to speak to people about things, even if they're not 100% ready yet. Uh, and I, I think that's the way entrepreneurship works. Uh, we want to be careful to obviously not lose that entirely. But right now, it's just a phase starting up with reefs uh, that I can't be thinking about things for weeks at a time. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, uh a pattern that I hear consistently, be it from venture capitalists who have to work or are working with many entrepreneurs, many startups or other people, um, this pattern of the ideal entrepreneur uh -huh. not being one person because you had to be schizophrenic sort of yeah. to, to, to combine all these different uh, mindsets and skill sets. Um, but oftentimes um, the ideal entrepreneur is... Um, a mix of three people, the, the kind of the skeptic, mm -hmm. the optimist and the mediator. So just, mm -hmm. or you could rephrase it maybe in the thinker, uh, the doer and whatever. So someone who organizes all of that. <laughs> yeah. You always need, um, apparently this, um, this team with, um, enriching skill sets. So. Yeah, totally. I, I think w we are missing, uh, a third person still. So if you're out there, no, we can't pay <laughs> um, or you not You pay yet. with purpose, I exactly, would say. Exactly, exactly. But um, also maybe I just have that in my head. Uh, important for me to, to clarify while I do see myself in, in terms of how we work now as a social entrepreneur. At the same time, we are not a business. So right, right now we're an association, a Verein, and uh, we're we're applying or trying to get this, uh, the nonprofit label. So we, we don't have the aim to go for profit at all, but this doesn't really make sense to try and get profit out of, out of reefs. I think if you think differently, write me an email, convince me. <laughs> Super. And you find that email on, on the website we mentioned. Sure. Or just reefs. info at reefs.com. Yeah. Um, I love to talk about these topics because actually we've we've heard from many people. Why don't you make this, um, you know, a how was it phrased? Well, something like a, a sustainable sustainability business. Mm -hmm. And but but because I'm not I, I'm not from a business background, so first of all, that's further away for me than than being a nonprofit. And we can be a nonprofit and still have a business model that allows us to scale up reef regeneration. For example, by developing our prototype to such an extent that we can build cheaply and quickly uh, coastal protection barriers. That's, that's our vision for five to 10 years that we can sell to the Maldives government a wave breaker, a coastal protection barrier that would otherwise cost them maybe 
10 million for a US dollar for a kilometer just to protect their coastline. But we can say, look, we build that for the same price, but at the same time you get a new reef back. Um, and I think we can do that without going for profit. Yeah, I, I believe so as well. And to me, it's uh, just a thought that arose. Maybe this third person would be uh, nevertheless somebody with a business mindset, business yeah. development, or the chief operating officer who thinks about these processes and That whatnot. would be great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you heard it here first. Uh, go and reach out if you uh, feel like this is for you. Um, well, what I would like to uh, get into is also slowly but surely into um, what can um, we do as individuals because this topic of now specifically coral reefs can be very distant to somebody who doesn't live close to the ocean and so on um, but also the climate change and sustainability conversation as mm. a whole this can be overwhelming and um, for the end I would like to get to that point um, of what individuals also can do uh, but first I would like to learn more about your understanding of um, kind of science, technology, and uh, social change. So I think there's a temptation to, to believe that um, this whole uh, challenge of sustainability, climate change, and so on, can be solved by technological progress, scientific progress, innovation, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that there's some truth to that. And but I, I believe it can't be the entire equation. I believe there must be also social innovation, so to speak, as part of it all. Um, but first, I would like to hear your view or your uh, thoughts on um, what role does the scientific and technological progress play? Um, maybe you can give some examples of um, progress that was made um, thanks to exponential technologies or technology and science as a whole, just as a conversation starter mm. in that topic area. I mean, f definitely I, I'm totally with you in that social change needs to be there as well. And I don't even know which way to put it, I, whether we need technological improvements accompanied by social change or the other way around. Um, my tendency is to think is the other way around. Um, I think technology, new technologies can aid a lot, can be, can be very important to maybe also help social change take place, right? For example, um, if you take meat consumption, meat consumption is one of, and here I'm not, uh, I'm not even a hundred percent vegetarian, but I'm, almost vegetarian. I'm really trying because I know and I really understand that meat consumption is one of the worst things we're doing to our planet. It's, uh, I think, about 20% of carbon dioxide emissions come from this whole industry and a lot of the destruction of soils, rainforests. I mean, it's just, a, it's a huge machine. We need a huge amount of soy to feed all these animals. So if there's a technological in, um, innovation to either make meat, say, in the lab and, and 
this is going on. People are doing it. It's just still a little bit expensive. But if we can do that and, and you know, allow people to still eat meat for a long time in the future, even if it gets a little bit more expensive, but without this huge uh, ecological footprint, then this technological innovation helps people um, maybe start changing their habits and not eating real meat from a cow, but eating lab meat instead. Or maybe reducing meat altogether because it because they notice through that the change that technology is bringing that maybe something is wrong with the original way of doing it. Um, and I, I think there's no technological innovation that I can think of that would uh, lead to a healthy planet with humanity as it is now <laughs> without social change happening. Okay, so then if I understand you correctly, you would say obviously it needs all the variables playing together, but you would say it's kind of a, a social first. So instead of thinking about engineering only in a technological sense, we should also expand that to social engineering in a sense of not only we need to innovate new technologies, mm -hmm. but also new, yeah, I don't know how to put it new systems that nudge us socially mm, yeah. to to lead to behavioral change i think it goes hand in hand the technological change and the social change exactly as you say new systems that maybe allow us to behave in different ways um, or that make it easier for us to change slowly i also don't think we need radical social change but constant in the right direction um, and I think, let's say renewable energies are a technology. Uh, there's different renewable energies out there, but through technological innovations, they got the, the, the power that we get from them got so cheap that now it's almost a no brainer to, uh, to use solar instead of oil, say, not unless oil gets cheap on the market for other weird reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and then at the same time, renewable energies are decentralized. So now this allows us as a society to maybe produce power more decentralized and maybe also have live in more decentralized uh, communities, for example, which might also push local consumption and, you know, lots of other behavioral changes could come along. Um, that's what I mean by that the technological and social change might happen kind of at the same time and one helps the other. I think the um, renewable energy um, topic is a good example of um, how the technological progress leads to cheaper and cheaper prices mm -hmm. or an economy of scale. Mm -hmm. We are approaching that very rapidly. Uh, and then I... I w the markets kick in or the marketplace kicks in and the dynamics of the market start to make it unreasonable to use the unsustainable options. And I would go as far as to say that the market is a social innovation. The market is a social construct. It's not something that has been um, designed or that is God-given or anything. There was a time before right. market um, capitalism and so on. So this is 
kind of a way of um, guiding, um, negotiating uh, behavior uh, of of entire societies, the market as one mechanism. Um, so I believe that um, there's potential in how can we um, tweak with the concept of markets Good point. to um, to accelerate the entire yeah, uh, progress. Yeah. I think I know what you mean. It's like can we can we maybe constrain parts of the market maybe also to such an extent that the market works in favor or let's say capitalism in a way works in favor of positive uh behavioral change for the planet as a whole but you know i i just have one thought that i want to get in there um go for it is in order for that to work i think there's one very important point that is not realized at the moment um, in our market. And that is that there has to be a price on every single, let's say, bad thing um, that we do, whether that's to our water systems, to our soil, to our climate, whether that is threatening a butterfly because you're getting rid of some meadow because you want to build a building that makes your product cheaper. So like every single aspect of how we affect our natural environment would have to have a negative price. And that's the main thing I think that's missing now. And that's the main reason why capitalism is really working against us at this point in time, uh, hugely because of its short sightedness and because uh, negative impacts on our environment are not in the price. Yeah. I think that's um, one of the huge areas of these externalities. Um, I believe it's the, the term you call it in economics. Those things that are not having a price or not are not considered in the prices that we are are paying for everything we do. Um, and I think that's for me also an example of if you want to create change or be part of the change. Um, you don't need to be an ocean biologist. Obviously, that's one very good way. But you can also be, um, let's call it a social scientist who is um, uh, putting their heads and minds around market mechanisms or whatever. So there's a huge or very broad um, way of how to contribute to to that transformation. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely. I mean, also, I think what will be very important um, <clears throat> going forward is law. Lawyers, environmental lawyers can, will have a huge role, I think, in um, trying at least to maybe interpret current law or, or helping change current law um, to, to make some of these necessary changes even possible because some of our laws are 100 years old. 50 years old and some of them are really destructive for I, I'm not an expert at all I, I just remember that I heard there are some you know law texts that are really working against us because they're so old and they've been designed for a different type of society yeah so the the innovation kind of um, is needed in all different mm. aspects of society and science etc absolutely um 
now I would like to uh, uh, come close to maybe an end of this conversation, even though we could go on for a much longer time and I'm really enjoying it. But I would like to um, pick up something uh, you said earlier, the um, example of meat consumption mm -hmm. is a good segue to the behavioral change, what individuals can do and so on. Um, because when you talked about it, I um, obviously thought about myself enjoying eating meat. Mm. <laughs> and, and I'm a good example, I would say, of I understand that it's bad, yeah. but I'm not acting accordingly. Interesting. So why is the question, exactly. right? Exactly. Yes. And I would like you to give me the answer <laughs> because it's such <laughs> a tricky question. Um, so I, I would like to just mingle around that for a little bit. Have you, um, in all these years that you have been very conscious about these topics, um, found, again, patterns or ideas, mm. um, why that is, why that disc discrepancy between understanding and doing? That I'm a victim of, no, no I, I'm not victimizing myself. I'm, uh, yeah, I just. A, a good example a of, good of example what a of, lot of people exactly. maybe think or, yeah. or how they act. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We see that a lot, I guess, that there's this understanding, but it's hard to act according to this understanding because of habits. I think it's a habitual thing. So I've also. In my family, there didn't used to be any vegetarians. I'm also not huge meat eaters, but just it was normal to eat meat uh, a few times a week, I would say. And so I didn't think about it much and it took years. I mean, this is maybe one thing. It's uh, If you want to go on that journey, become vegetarian, maybe have it be, be okay with yourself that it takes a while. I, I'm not advocating for, you know, stop now or something. I think that's maybe counterproductive. Um, so it took a long time from eating less and less. And I like it's I like the taste of meat. That's not the problem. And that is the problem. That is the problem. <laughs> it's so tasty. No, but, you know, a, a good tip is fish sauce. Okay. Use fish, use, <laughs> you want to use uh, ingredients that give you the same type of satisfaction for your taste buds. Uh -huh. And fish sauce and soy sauce are great for that. Okay. Just add it. Oh, sorry, I brushed the microphone. <laughs> fish sauce and soy sauce are great for that. Just add them to your, uh, you know, veggie uh, curry or something. Actually, anything that has a lot of spice probably works well. Yeah. I, I've seen that... Um, in transitioning to a meatless diet, um, it's important to still cook exciting things or eat exciting things, which means if you go out for dinner, less so at the moment, but once we all go out for dinner again, um, you know, go to a restaurant that's specialized in vegetarian because they know how to produce a dish that's amazing, tasteful, and where you're not missing the meat. That's fun. That's fun. I think often we, let's say a, a traditional Swiss restaurant, same with traditional German restaurants, for example, you go there and you want vegetarian, you get a salad and potato. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a second class Yeah, you plate, feel like you're, you're missing out on the real thing. Mm -hmm. You're yeah. just getting what comes with the meat. Or at least that's our conception, that it's... 
and then it's not fun. And of course, you feel like, but this guy has a sausage. Mm -hmm. I want that looks good. I only have the potatoes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, then then it's harder to get rid of this habit. But um, of what did a real big uh, or what had a real big impact on me was when I somehow at some point my understanding of what happens to the planet when we consume different types of foods and especially meat it just clicked and and it's not that I didn't understand before how bad it is but there was just this one point in time where I don't know if you will it, it, it all opened up and I was like holy shit I really can't do this if I want if I love biodiversity and nature and rainforests and coral reefs and uh, I just can't do this maybe, so yeah maybe. then I was like okay I'm just not doing it and it, it, it's it's much easier to cook meat free at home anyways <laughs> Maybe that's this tick is the result of your incubation period yeah, of your exactly. personal strength, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just incubate on it for years until it's uh, it becomes really clear. As a kind of uh, last few minutes to to close this conversation, I would like to um, learn from you uh, whatever serves you. What are you looking for, for example, now or in the long term? Um, we mentioned the crowdfunding campaign that is active till, uh, I believe, 28th or end of December. No, that's the 18th, actually, the 18th. The 18th? Yeah. Okay, of December. Good, very good to know. Um, that's now, I guess, something you can use, but also long term. Are you looking for partners or what? What is um, helping you in your important project with Reefs? Uh, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity here. Um, actually, yeah, so, I mean, now we started a crowdfunding two weeks ago on the Swiss platform. We make it, it's open to everybody, obviously, you can participate internationally. And uh, we did this to finance basically the kickoff of our organization reefs to allow us to build a first big pilot reef, um, which we're building in September next year in uh, San Andres Island in Colombia. We have really amazing coral restoration partners there that are doing this with us and um, in order to just get there and uh, build this pilot we need this crowdfunding and we're looking for 60,000 francs and there's still uh, an amount to fill so please <laughs> if you want to support I mean go go to our website rrreefsreefs.com um, or have a look on wemakeit.com and type in corals. Um, maybe there'll also be a link on the website uh, of Sparker. Um, and uh, chip in or tell your friends. There's nice rewards to get. You can you can sponsor and name a brick for our new reef. It'll have your name on it. Not actually printed, mm -hmm. but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, uh, when I thought about it um, for this conversation, I believe it's uh, also... It's a great idea for uh, Christmas presents. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I have my creative sparks for Christmas presents, and sometimes not. But um, uh, I just thought that one of the rewards, if you support the campaign, for example, is a 3D printed vase. Mm -hmm. 
um, or you can, you can get cool socks or you mentioned the, the coral block that is kind of created in your name that will live its life in, in the oceans. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess the, I think these are cool gifts, at least if you compare it to giving a pyjama or perfume <laughs> yeah. or whatever it is. So I um, also like books, but yes. <laughs> yeah, books, always yeah. nice. But yeah, why not, you know, especially now who wants to go shopping really in these yeah. times uh, uh, yeah. or anyways. Mm -hmm. um, no, why not? Why not? give somebody a part of a new reef or give somebody new life in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, in the long term, I believe it's, you're very open for, for partners who provide skill sets or opportunities or. Definitely. Or if you're a marketing professional or a, a COO mm -hmm. <laughs> type of person, we need you. Uh, we'll also need, um, We're also always open for volunteers, anyone really, if you're in Switzerland in particular. There'll be test installations in the lake. If you're a diver, you can come contact us. Um, if you want to, if you feel like you, this is something you'd want to work on, on the, for the long term, just contact us. We'll keep you in a database. Maybe at some point we'll have huge funding and we can, I mean, if we could have a team of 10 full-time employees, that would be amazing. We would progress so much faster because we, we're doing scientific projects together with the ETH in Zurich and the ZHDK. And, you know, all of this needs some initial funding to get started. If you want to be an official sponsor, we're very open to that. We can talk about possibilities here of how we can present your name. You can use our name or images of the new reef, uh, the new life that we've that we've allowed to flourish in the ocean. Yeah. So definitely anything like definitely at this point, fundraising is a big thing. We're a little new organization and we need to grow in order to really make a difference for coral reefs. Cool. A lot of options to, uh, to join in, in that case. Thank you. Um, and just as a, as a last question, I could go on forever, but as a last question, um, uh, um, with all of these talks of pressing challenges and, and so on, um, what are the things that kind of give you hope or an optimistic feeling about it all? Um, I've seen, I mean, especially among coral scientists, Uh, scientists the the energy is really amazing everyone around the world is now well not probably not everyone but so many people are working on really trying to make a change uh trying to help coral reefs survive even just the next 10 years because everyone feels that urgency and it's good to see that With this urgency being felt, people are really taking action. They're starting to work together, collaborate. People are leaving their, you know, maybe academic towers um, to to go and and make a difference for the ocean. And I've, I'm also seeing change in, in society. It, it's slow and it's been going on for a long time. But I mean, I guess we all felt it that there's a new movement coming a very green movement uh, that wants to see a betterment, uh, wants to see us deal with our natural environment in a, in a more caring way. 
So that really gives me hope. I think we're, we've embarked on a good journey. There's been a little bit of a break through uh, COVID because that has been a very acute crisis. But I, I trust that we're still on that journey and that movement is still very strong, uh, trying to change uh, our, our interactions with the planet for the better. So that really gives me hope. Yeah, I, I think we're on to something. And with that, um, I would like to thank you, Ulrike. Thanks very much for your precious time and the insights. It was a big pleasure for me to, to talk to you and hope to see you soon. Thank you very much, Christian, and, for having me. And all the best with reefs. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks again to scientist and entrepreneur Ulrike Freund from the non-profit organization Reefs for sharing her holistic insights with us. Don't forget to check out her website with cool videos and more on reefs.com. That's R-R-R-E-E-F-S dot com. For more exciting conversations with leading minds in technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship, please consider subscribing to the Sparker podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. There you find, for example, a conversation about storytelling with a former marketing expert at Apple, a far-ranging discussion about artificial intelligence, how to become more creative in your work, or how to build your personal and professional resilience with tips from a leading stress researcher and psychiatrist. I'm looking forward to welcoming you back to another episode soon, where I'll uncover the mindsets, tactics and insights of exceptional people and organizations to enable you, the change makers. It was a great pleasure having you with me this episode. I wish you a great day and talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.